Good afternoon. It is Friday, August 24th, 2012. It is a gloriously sunny day here in Tampa, Florida, uh, although I understand from uh, what may be Hurricane Isaac that may be about to change. We also have about 50,000 guests about to arrive in our city, so it uh, is an interesting time to live in Tampa. Our guest this morning is from Boston, and her name is Whitney Johnson, and she is the author of a book called Dare, Dream, Do. Remarkable things happen when you dare to dream. And I love what Whitney wrote in the front of the book that she sent to me to review. Dear Chickie, thank you for creating a place where so many women can dare to dream out loud. Oh, I love that. So, Whitney, welcome to the show, and uh, why don't you start out just by giving us a little bit of a thumbnail about you personally. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's, I, I'm really delighted to be here. I, To tell a little of my story, I went to Wall Street in the late 90s and arrived there as a music major, Having never set foot in an accounting, economics, or finance course, I had grown up on the West Coast and um, was now in New York City. My husband was there to go to graduate school, and I needed to put food on the table and obviously, therefore, needed to work. I decided that I, because I was in New York, I was going to work on Wall Street, and as you have surmised, that was a bit of a problem. (laughs) And so I had to start at the very, very low end, which was um, as a sales assistant to a retail broker. As I started to do that, I looked around and I thought, hmm, I see that I am doing, taking orders and doing very sort of secretarial administrative tasks. I see all these guys across the the aisle from me, um, calling people up and challenging them to buy stocks and throw down their pom-poms and get in the game. And I looked at them and I thought, you know what, I'm as smart as these guys. And so I made the decision that I was going to, um, I apologize for that. I don't know, could you hear the dog barking? Yeah. It's totally okay. It, it, it means that we know that you're a real person. Yes, there's dogs barking in the, in the background. Anyway, so I decided that I, you know, I was seeing all these fellows and I thought I'm just as smart as these, these guys are and I am going to work my way up. And so I started taking accounting classes at night and finance classes at night and was eventually able to have a boss who was willing to help me make what is an often unbridgeable divide and move from secretary into an investment banking analyst, which was huge for me. And so I did that for, I became an investment banking analyst, did that for about seven years, then became an equity um, research analyst, sell-side analyst covering uh, Latin American telecom and media. And then in 2005, I took a sabbatical from Wall Street. And um, and and I'll go into what I'm doing now, but I think this is really important, and it goes to why I wrote the book. Um, I now was no longer working 80 or 90 hours a week. I had time to start talking to some of the parents of my children's friends and having conversations with them and asking them, what's your dream? What do you want to do? Let's make it happen, et cetera. And what really surprised me was that frequently people would say to me, I'm not sure that I know what my dream is, and if I do know what my dream is, I'm not sure that I can actually execute against it. And frequently there was an unspoken, I'm not sure it's my privilege to dream. 
And that really concerned me because these were capable, competent, educated women who I admired tremendously. And it was it was sort of saddening and concerning all at the same time that they thought it wasn't a privilege to dream. And so that was really the impetus for my starting to blog and starting to, and that eventually led to the writing of this book, Dare Dream Do. Well, you have had just a, an amazing ride since then. Now, um, you ended up being the media analyst for Latin America, and I know, um, you know, during your days post uh, university, you you did a, a mission uh, trip for the church uh, in Montevideo, Uruguay, and and clearly became. I don't know if you were fluent before you went there, but uh, I see you were born in Madrid. <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about that uh, chapter of your life. I, I was born in Madrid, Spain, and my parents were actually just living there for about a year. So even though um, I was born there, and I I like to think that I'm Spanish, at least my kids think that I think I am, I'm not. Um, I always studied Spanish in school, and as you mentioned, I did um, end up serving a mission for my church, which is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, frequently known as the Mormons. Um, I was in Montevideo, Uruguay. Very uh, much in the news these days. Yes, exactly, exactly, um, for a year and a half. And that was was such an important experience for me because I think at that time in my life, I was 21 years old, and it's so easy, I think, at that point in our lives, and I think anybody who's been in the Peace Corps will tell you this, that it's, it's important, and it certainly was vitally important for me for that year and a half period to not focus on myself, but to focus on other people. And so um, so that's what I did for a year and a half, and I really just focused on serving and loving and caring about the people in Uruguay, and it was one of the richest experiences of my life. And I think that because of that, I have always and continue to love Latin America, and much of my career is actually been in Latin America, and so while I would say that I'm not certainly not a native fluency in Spanish, I, right. I I speak very well. Well, you and you and I share that Latin American connection. My dad was actually born in uh, uh, Curitiba, Brazil, and uh, oh, he was the the son of a Presbyterian missionaries, and my uh, my sisters were both born in Lisbon, Portugal, and my parents were missionaries there uh, back in the 50s. So um, I got my start. Uh, my international career start in Latin America. I was uh, with American Airlines Sabre at the time. And was oh, wow. So do you Latin speak America. Portuguese then, too? Uh, I tell you, I speak Portuñol, which is a really oh, bad mixture yep. of Spanish and Portuguese. Yep. So I yep. understand an enormous amount of both languages, but speak both of them very badly. In fact, I remember an occasion of being in Buenos Aires and being so proud that I went in and ordered my own lunch until I realized I actually ordered a soap and cheese or a soap sandwich instead of a cheese sandwich <laughs> <laughs> because peso and uh, and uh, the the word for soap were very very similar. So anyway, I, I gave up trying to speak it then. But uh, anyway, yeah. I, I just uh, I found that very very interesting. So and and again in reading um, Clayton Christensen's. Uh, history. I, I didn't realize he went to BYU as well. Did you know the Christensen family out there, or did you guys get connected in Boston? No, we didn't. And and I and probably for listeners, we, I'll, I'll circle back really quickly. Um, you know, after I took the sabbatical in 2005, I did a lot of different things. Started a magazine and all sorts of entrepreneurial adventures. But 
um, in the course of that, I was doing some um, a lot of volunteer projects with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School, and so we became acquainted um, in the course of those interactions. And in 2007, he had he had been managing his personal money using the frameworks or applying the frameworks of disruptive innovation um, and wanted to institutionalize it. Because of my Wall Street background, he had asked me to join him as a founding partner of Rose Park Advisors and the launch of Disruptive Innovation Fund, which is a hedge fund slash or come VC fund. And so um, so we've been doing that for five years. And so to answer your question, um, yes, he did go to BYU. And yes, our initial, um, but I didn't know him in Utah. Right. He's he's a good decade older than I am. But we right. did um, connect his via... his also in the firm with you? It's his son. It's his, his son. son. Okay. It's yeah, his oldest that son. Wasn't yeah. when I was reading the bios. Yeah, it's his youngest, or not, sorry. It's his... It's his young son, but his oldest son. Got it, got it. Well, let's dive into the book because that's uh, that's what we like to do here on Fridays for our listeners. And and again, the name of the book is Dare, Dream, Do. And when I first saw this, Whitney, what came to my mind is that when we're young, and particularly as girls, um, when we're growing up. We aren't often on the receiving end of somebody daring us to do something. That that kind of is more of a boy term. And I, I happen to have a 14-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old son, so I'm acutely aware of the differences between the sexes um, from from the child-rearing perspective. Um, we we are very very comfortable in the dreaming and the doing phases, but not so much the daring. And that's why I loved uh, again, you know, what you said uh, as, as you uh, wrote in in the book that you gave me about dreaming out loud and actually daring yourself to do things that you might not normally do. So let's let's uh, jump in and talk about the whole uh, framework of daring and and what what made you pick that particular term other than the fact that it goes really well well uh, in alliteration with dreaming and doing well yeah and you've got dare dream do and disrupt so i i i clearly you know d to the you know fourth power i don't know i clearly right. like the, the d word but the the framework for it and as you pointed out is some people said to me why isn't it dream dare do um but i think um, as you said, you have a daughter that's 14 years old, and I think we, any of us who do have daughters, we look at these young little girls who are three and four and six and eight, and they think they can be an astronaut. They think they can be anything. Um, and yet, as they get older, um, there's sort of the Mary Piper Ophelia problem, and then older and older, and then life just sort of takes over and it whittles away at our energy and our hopes and our dreams. And so, that it it gets to the point where in order for us to go out and do something hairy and audacious, it really is a dare. We have to overcome a lot of fear. And so so the book itself is a three-part model, as you mentioned, of the first section being about the dare. And that's the piece where I build a case for why it is important for us to dream. Um, because I think, as you said, 
dreaming and doing for many isn't so difficult. It's just the believing that it is okay for us to dream and do. And then the second section of the book, Dream, is really focused on how do you identify what your dreams are? And so we can talk a little bit about that more in a moment. And then the third section is on the do and using my business expertise and experience of really looking at, okay, how do you begin to execute against that dream with some really concrete steps? Right. So let, let's jump in into the the part one of the book, and and there are really four sections here of, of your talking uh, in the dare section about why dreaming is ex- essential. Because again, that that daring yourself to do something more is, is a critical part of that. So to make meaning of life is the first chapter. To find your voice, to find yourself to truly grow up, and to show children how to dream. And, and I think that that's a really important component because um, in, in, our, uh, in our lifetime, what we have seen is, uh, in the first part of my career at least, everybody was with the same company for a very long time. And it wasn't mm-hmm. unusual for people to stay and retire. And then the whole second half of my career has all been characterized by, you know, people moving and changing a lot, whether it be changing companies or, you know, starting, you know, those of us who are serial entrepreneurs, starting, failing, starting, failing, failing big, you know, succeeding, <laughs> a little, you know, having the succeeding big. One. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I'm waiting for that one. That that's my next one. But but I, you know, this last one of to show children how to dream. Really resonates with me because so many people get stuck in just doing their whole life and they they never get to that place. So why is dreaming essential for our children or just or in general? Just in general. I mean, we have to general. Okay, all right. So so just to to, to hit some high points, um, you know, as I as I mentioned in the book, the very first chapter is that we need to dream to make meaning of our life. Um, oftentimes, well, not oftentimes, everyone has a lot of things about their life that are confusing and messy and, and oftentimes, again, almost always there's some pain in our past. And I think when we dream, we're able to craft a narrative that makes sense of what has happened to us and, and, and a narrative that will help us propel into the future. And I think that as we dream, we understand the significance of our lives and the meaning that these experiences have and how the difficult experiences that we have, have are actually what allow us to make our greatest contributions. And I think that whole process of dreaming is that dreaming. When we dream, we do make meaning of what has happened to us. Um, and, and then we do that also to find our voice. Uh, one of the things that I I actually quote Mary Pfeiffer, who wrote the book about the Ophelia piece, is that. Um, in order to really discover the essence of who we are, we have to dream. Um, we have to dare to find our voice. We have to believe that we have something to say to contribute to the world, world conversation. And that when we use our words and our, our articulate our views, we also discover who we are. So I think that's another important aspect of why it's important to dream is because it just helps us discover who we are. Um, the third main reason that we need to dream is to help us to grow up. Um, one of the things that I pointed out and I said earlier about, you know, throwing down throwing down our pom-poms. You know, when I was in high school, I was a cheerleader and I was really, you know, I loved being a cheerleader. But part of growing up for girls is learning not only how to cheer people on, 
or to be the harbor, but also to learn to be the ship and to go out and navigate uncharted waters. And obviously, the task for boys is the opposite. They know how to be the ship, but they need to learn how to be a harbor. And when and part of learning how to be a ship is dreaming. That helps us learn how to do that. And then the fourth piece, and I think is one of the most essential, is that we, when we dream, we model for our children how to dream because they learn by watching. But perhaps even more importantly, um, Carl Jung once said that the most, um, the, the largest influence on our children's lives is the unlived life of our parents. And so if we live our own lives, then our children are not fated to live our unlived life. And then we can be witnesses to the lives that they lead and their own dreams. And so we dream to teach them how to dream, but we dream so that they can dream their own dreams. Mm. So when we focus in on the dreaming piece of this and and what it means to boldly find your dreams and and to really hone in on that which you would like to uh, move from a dream into actually doing – um, mm-hmm. You start out by talking about being the hero of your own story. So uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, so in order to dream, you have to be the hero of your story. But one of the things that often happens for women is that we live our lives on the sidelines, again, to pull back in the you know the pom-pom and cheerleader metaphor. Um, and sometimes living through the dreams of others. And in order to dream our own dreams, that requires a paradigm shift. And so one of the ways, sort of as a warm-up for dreaming our own dreams, it's important that we start telling stories, stories about ourselves, and then stories in which we claim the central place in our lives and become the hero of our story, which is obviously drawing on the work, work of Joseph Campbell. And so that's, that's an essential piece to to learning how to dream and, again, discovering who we are. And then the next step in this is, is making space for your dreams. <laughs> are our lives too crowded? Do we, do we not have room to expand ourselves? <laughs> we do have room. Um, this chapter, actually, I put in there almost as if to say, okay, we've been talking about for about 80 pages why it's important to dream and you're – you're you're saying you want to do it, and this is sort of the, the okay, we're on the roller coaster, we're in the station, we're about to take off, you're about to get really, really scared because as you dream, what it means is that you're going to have to carve out time that you say to your loved ones, this is my time for me to dream, or you're going to have to have a space in your home where you, you know, are going to dream or you're going to require resources in the form of of money, for example. And so this is part of the, you know, just as you need to make space for your physical things, you you need to make space in your life and your mind and your heart for your dreams. And, oh, by the way, because of the way we're socialized, this is going to be really hard, so so brace yourself. Mm. And so then you move on and you encourage us to take an inventory of our strengths and our competencies. Do you, do you think that most people are are aware of what their strengths and their competencies are or they need to be told and encouraged externally? I think it's both. Um, I think we know, I would say we know the things that we're good at that are sort of 
our B-level strengths, I think sometimes our A-level strengths, we're not actually aware of them because we do them so reflexively well, we don't even notice them. Um, there are the things that, you know, when we do them, if we were to sort of take an inventory, they integrate us, we enjoy doing them, they make us feel strong. Um, but it's the kind of thing that someone says to you, oh, you know, you're so, like if I were to say to you, you're such a good interviewer, you might just say to me, well, you, you would just brush me off because you do it so reflexively well. And so naturally that it doesn't even occur to you that it's a strength. And so so one of the things I think is really important and why I sometimes think that our dreams aren't over the rainbow, they're under our feet, is that the things that we do best we can't even see them. And so we, in part, need to be a little bit more careful about what people say to us that we do well and also make keep a log or, or inventory what you did in any course of a given week or, or month that was just really fun for you, and that's likely one of your, your innate talents. Got it, got it. So then... The next piece, and, and I think this is one that people often forget about, is is knowing your deeply held beliefs. And and I have observed uh, in many of the folks that I know a tendency to separate um, those deep beliefs, uh, which for most of us, you know, borders into the discussion of our faith, and mm -hmm. those things that our skills and, and talents and tasks and, you know, here's my resume and here's who I have worked for. And those two things are, are really kept very, very separate. And living, That's right. an, in, <clears throat> living an integrated life, which is uh, one of the reasons why I formed the Executive Girlfriends Group, it wasn't meant to talk about just our business lives because um, sometimes we have to talk about our children and sometimes we have to talk about our husbands or sometimes we have to talk about our interactions with siblings or you know other people in our lives whether it's church or university or whatever uh, our outside influence is or or the charities that we donate our our time to and so you know i think before you can even know what your deeply held beliefs are i think you really have to ask yourself whether whether you wall the different parts of your life off because if you want to draw on those beliefs into your business uh, endeavors, uh, you have to break down some of those walls, don't you think? Absolutely. And I, I think you'll actually, as you're saying that, part of my own sort of story of writing this book you'll find fascinating. Um, when I started to put together a draft of the book and, you know, how do you figure out what your dreams are, I had a woman who was um, doing some line editing for me who is, is I don't know if she's religious, but I know she's definitely, we're, we're of different religions. And at one point um, she said to me, Whitney, um, you don't talk about your faith at all anywhere in this book. And I said, oh, you're right, I don't. And it was one of the, and she said, it's kind of the elephant in the room because I know you're religious and yet you're not mentioning it anywhere. <laughs> and it really took me aback because I thought, well, but, uh, you know, like tongue tied. And I thought, well, but I just, part of it was, well, I kind of don't want to talk about this to your earlier point. But then another part of it was, is it was so, it was so a priori. It was so foundational for me. I couldn't, I couldn't even see it. 
And so as a consequence of that conversation with her, I realized that I had to write this particular chapter, and it turns out to be one of my favorite chapters, I suppose, because it was one that someone pushed me to write. Because we do dream within the context of what we believe, whether it's our religious beliefs or or otherwise. And so one exercise I would really encourage um, everybody to do is to sit down, because you can figure out what you believe by looking at quotes that you love. Um, and I went through that exercise, and I would encourage you to do, do that too. Like, what are the quotes that you find yourself quoting over and over and over again throughout the course of your life? And that will be a pretty good signpost for you of what you believe about the world. And I'll give you a specific example. One of my favorites is, um, and I'll, it's, you can bet your life, and that, and twice it's double, that God knew exactly where he wanted you to be placed. It's from Stevie Wonder in his album, The Songs, of Key, Songs in the Key of Life, that came out in the mid, mid, early to mid-70s. That is a quote that I've carried with me my entire life, and it tells me a lot. It tells me that I believe that I am where I'm supposed to be, that there are things that I'm supposed to be doing, and that there is a divine being that knows who I am. And whether I want to or not, I dream within that context. And I think that that's really important for everybody to be aware of of what you believe because for good or ill, those beliefs will affect how you dream. Oh, absolutely. No, I firmly, I, I am firmly with you on that one because I, I think, again, if if we don't understand our significance in that context, then we can only draw our significance from the circumstance that we're in at the time. And it's really hard uh, to be sitting in a, a an office in New York City doing secretarial work, making the observation that you were making <laughs> about the mm-hmm. men around you, and to dare to dream that you could not only uh, do the work that they were doing, but run a firm that would do even more significant work than than what was done in that particular office, right? Mm-hmm. And yep. and so again, I, I think um, this one is a really important one, and and it's one that I hold hold dear because, um, you know, I I look at women uh, and I get calls all the time who you know have been going through cutbacks with their staff and giving out pink slips, and then all of a sudden they'll call me and they say chicky i didn't see it coming you know i got mine and then all of a sudden they don't have this big name company on their business card Mm -hmm. and and they struggle so much with that lack of significance and and again even dreaming and, and as i shared with you before we got on the recorded portion of this call we have a number of women in the executive girlfriends group who held significant jobs and and who uh, really were very, very good at what they were doing. Now, they all happen to be now in their late 40s, early 50s, some uh, perhaps even in their, their late 50s, and in the last three or four years have not been able to get reemployed or are significantly underemployed. And so I, I think that, uh, you know, taking a look at, at this whole section on dreaming is so important, particularly if you are in that place where, where you, don't, uh, you don't have a place to go do anything other than job hunting. 
Um, so let's, let's yeah, and I I would love it. it. So if I can just add there, I would love it if if um, any of your listeners who actually you know read the book and find that this really jump starts and kick starts their taking their dreams in a different direction, I would love to hear their stories. I, I because it is so important that for us to understand that our identity is not solely wrapped up in a job. Our identity and who we are is important and valuable independent of that. So I, I would love that if anybody, you know, would like to share that at some point. Well, I love that, and, and thank you so much for that offer. Um, let's, let's move on to um, Chapter 9, which is within this Part 2 about dream, building on your feminine strengths. So often we are actually conditioned to hide our feminine strengths. So talk to us about building on them. Yeah, this was another chapter that was really hard for me to write um, because of my background of, of going on Wall Street and, and, you know, society, I sort of, I've drunk the Kool-Aid of society that values thinking and power and achieving at the expense of the feminine values of relatedness and nurturing. And, and I think that because of that, you know, many of us, spend our lives in this constant state of inferiority um, because, you know, our feminine nature is sort of, and because we are women, it's second best. And so um, one of the things that I really try to focus on in this chapter is that, yes, masculine traits are important. And I go back to this whole notion of um, Jungian psychology that each one of us have a masculine and feminine components to our psyche and that one of the tasks of growing up is learning to develop both. And so what I say in here is, yes, your masculine components of learning to to wield power are, are vitally important, but also equally important are your feminine strengths of nurturing and relatedness and caring, and that our best dreams um, will be those that not only give life to ourselves but to others. And when we can do both, that's when we will be happiest. Mm. Well, Chapter 10 has an unusual um, chapter title. And, and all along in this book, you've been you know, propelling us forward. And then Chapter 10 is about right-sizing your dreams. Now, that feels like we're somehow uh, slowing down a bit or coming to a stop. So what do you mean by right-size your dreams? I mean a little bit of what you think I mean, but not quite. Um, in this chapter, I tell a story about how I had this experience. It was a black tie event that I needed to go to about four or five years ago, where for the first time in my life, I thought, I'm going to have a dress made for this event. It was a real splurge, and, and I recognized that. But I have to tell you, Selecting a pattern that I thought would look good on my body and the fabric that I thought would look good on me and going to that dressmaker and having her fit the measurements for my small bust line, for my waist, for my hips was such an important moment for me because I realized, and I, I guess the metaphor for me here was that our dreams don't have to be off the rack. They can be tailored made to us. And, that, and then by extension, um, because we often have many dreams, sometimes right-sizing means that we need to, you know, have a small one dream be smaller to make room for another dream. But it also sometimes means that we are not dreaming big enough and that we need to supersize our dreams. And so while there's that 
sense that when I say route size, I'm meaning downsize. I'm actually meaning we need to right size our dreams so that they're the size that fits us. Mm. You know, and, and sometimes it's an issue of timing, right? So the the dream yes. that we have is not the wrong dream. And and this is what I've struggled with in, in my own circumstance with uh, the business that I had uh, started five years ago, which was ended up being what I call my spectacular failure. And, and I, I say it that way not because I feel like a failure as a result of it. The business itself failed for a, a broad number of reasons, which is the topic for a whole other call. But but the point is that the dream that I had and the disruptive innovation that I raised $7 million to build and, and did build it um, is still valid. It was just the wrong time. And so right sizing for me was taking that um, that failure and preserving the dream within it and tucking it away until it is time, right? That's so and, powerful, and so yeah. That, yeah, I think that that's yeah. another measure. And those of us who are serial entrepreneurs who constantly have ideas, and, and we've got people around us hopefully who are doing a good job of helping us filter those dreams and saying, yes, now's the time to go for that one. And and because it isn't just, you know, for people like me, it's not just one dream. <laughs> you know, I've got a mm-hmm. whole path full of them. And I take exactly. all of them all the time. And it's like, okay. <laughs> well, and just know. one comment before we go on, you know, the fact that you raised $7 million, I mean, I know you know this and I know everybody else knows this, but I think it still bears repeating, you know, $7 million is a significant raise by anyone, but um, the number, the percentage of women in our country that have been able to raise that kind of money is it's less than 1%. So, I mean, really? the, the mere fact that, in fact, there's a great book called The Rising, oh, I think it's called The Rising Tide. It just came out by the Kauffman Foundation. I recommend it to any woman who's mm-hmm. listening to this as an entrepreneur because it talks about all different ways and the statistics around fundraising for businesses. Highly recommend. Anyway, the point is is that the ability to go out and sell a business plan to the extent that you're able to raise $7 million of funding, um, regardless of what happened after, is a huge win in my book. Well, thank you. And and I, I do need that encouragement because I am taking bits and pieces of that dream and repackaging them and uh, I'm about to go out again. So uh, So it's a perfect time to start talking about the do section of the book which is actually making your dreams happen. And the the first, uh, there are five components of this, embracing discovery, creating your dare-to-dream team. And I've got some comments on that one because that that was a part of my previous uh, spectacular failure. Uh, Learn to bootstrap. I actually wrote a book called Bootstrap Business after I was done with that one. Uh, Date your dream and double dog dare. So talk to me about doing. Uh, I'm ready to do again, you know, despite the scars and and personal bankruptcy and all the things that occurred after that venture. Um, How do we get on the horse to actually run after what we want? Well, it's it, this is this first chapter in this section of embracing discovery is a perfect segue from the conversation that we were just happening beca- having because dreaming is a discovery driven process and and I actually pull from um, some research on entrepreneurs. Uh, Professor Amar Bide, who um, is now at the Harvard Kennedy School, but he did research that um, indicated that for 
70% of all successful businesses, the strategy that led to their success is not the one they initially pursued. And the people that were and were able to eventually be successful are the ones who had cash or resources or energy, effectively, to make it work when they figured out what they actually needed to be doing. And so um, I pull that that metaphor from business to look at the dreaming process, that dreaming, you have to discover your way to your dream. It's not about the checklist of convention of, okay, tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I have this list of 10 things I'm going to get done and voila, I'll have a dream. It's not like that. It's I think this is what I want to do. Let me do a few steps in that direction and then let me tweak, and then let me keep going forward. And um, and again, you know, the research suggests that you can have very, very successful businesses or dreams um, knowing full well that the strategy you start out with is probably likely 70% of the time not going to be the, the dream or the business you end up with. Interesting. Um, and and then you you do talk about who you surround yourself with because uh, you know and I certainly know from uh, from all of the meetings that we had when we were raising money that at the end of the day it was all about the team and I will tell you and I would say confidentially but here we are on the <laughs> with all of your best executive you know, girlfriends <laughs> yeah yeah we're way past the executive girlfriends but um, you know I was told I needed a dream team in order to raise money to build my business. Mm-hmm. And so I hired the former head of AOL Travel. I hired the former head of EDS Travel and Transportation. And I hired uh, the woman who had headed up uh, distribution technology for AAA because we were doing something in the mapping and navigation and travel space. And uh, the big mistake I made was I listened to them tell me that I was too passionate about the innovation to be the CEO and that we needed someone else <gasps> previous CEO experience. So I had to turn my dream over. For shame. Oh, my huh. gosh. Yeah. Okay, you know I mean? so, uh, all right. So, okay, so on this the extent. <laughs> I think I hit a nerve. <laughs> yeah, well, I just, I, I, I'm listening to you tell me that story, and it just, yeah, sort of the, the hairs on the back of my neck, everything about me bristles. And I think, so a couple of things there. I would say, on the Dare to Dream team, we, we don't dream well in isolation. We know that, um, especially because oftentimes the things that women do best are things that society doesn't observe or value, like relatedness and nurturing. So we need to have people around us. Right. And we also need to say our dreams out loud because oftentimes the people that can help us are not one degree of separation. They're two or three degrees of separation away. Now, what's interesting to me about what you just said, which I think goes a little bit away from this idea of the Dare to Dream team, is that we, well, it's sort of the other side of it. I think sometimes as women, um, when we're starting out on this disruptive path, it can be very lonely and it can be very scary because we're doing something that we've never done before. And there will be all sorts of people who say, there, there, little girl, you can't do this by yourself. And so one of the things that takes tremendous courage to do when we're dreaming is, yes, we need to surround ourselves that people can help us, but still have the confidence to say, this is my dream. 
Exactly. And we need to do it my way. And so one of the things that I have learned, having had some interesting, spectacular business failures myself, is to say, okay, if I want to work with someone, I am going to, um, and this goes along with the whole dating dreams, is I'm going to work with them on a specific project. We're going to write a blog post together and see what right. that's like. How do we work together? How do we exchange ideas? Do I feel comfortable saying what I think? Mm-hmm. Does he feel comfortable saying what he thinks? And then once that post is done, we say, okay, that worked. Now let's do something that we do for two months together. And so I think on the day, you know, dream team, um, I think that it's important for us to really date the members of our dream team, and which is, a very hard one lesson, particularly for a woman, because we meet people and we instinctively like them and we want to be friends with them. And the lesson that I've learned is that if a person does not want to sit down and put down on paper our rules of engagement from the beginning, either they want to fleece me or they're not sophisticated yet enough to know that we must do this because if we don't, we won't be able to be successful. Period. Oh, my gosh. And I will tell you, and again, I didn't make a mistake in picking that particular dream team, by the way. I mean, I, I couldn't have done better than to have a chief operating officer who had been the head of AOL Travel. You know, I mean, I couldn't have done better than him. So it yeah. wasn't that. It was me abdicating my role as dreamer. And and as also as, I mean, I'm I'm one of the lead strategists in the travel industry. So... You know, I mean, just even that alone, uh, you know, should have kept me at the table. But anyway, that it's neither here nor there what happened with that. But you are absolutely right that we do jump way too fast into relationships because we want to believe that they have the same passion and the same drive that we do. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. many businesses fail because one person is doing all of the work and the other one just thinks that they're – uh, you know their presence, and I, you know, I had this in in one of my other ventures as well, where, you know, and I am a workaholic, and so uh, it's natural that I'm going to do all of this work. But you don't know that until you do date date the dream and, right. and think about right. whether it's going to actually, uh, you know, do well. And again, we skipped over the bootstrap part, but again, I think that could be an entire. Uh, <laughs> and you've written a book on it, so <laughs> I have, and, and I mean, I am the queen of bootstrapping, so uh, uh, we don't need to go there. But let's. Let's just end um, the discussion talking about the last chapter because I love uh, this kind of gets back to what I said in the beginning. You know, as as young girls on the playground, we're not the ones getting the double dog dare, right? The boys Mm -hmm. are doing it to each other. So tell us about are we double dog daring ourselves at this juncture or are we listening to the coaching of others to propel us forward to actually dare, dream, and do? Well, I think that I think it's both. I mean, to go back to this metaphor of you know get in the game and you know throw down your pom poms and get in the game. I think that to have a happy life, we know we need to know how to get in the game, to carry the ball down the field ourselves, and we also need to know how to be on the sidelines and cheer others on. Um, in this particular instance of Double Dog Dare, this is again sort of okay. We've had four or five chapters now of okay, here's how you do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But now, all right, folks. We really need to go. It's time to start. And your perfectionism is going to kick in and you're going to get scared and you're going to think you're going to make mistakes and, oh, if I can just get one more piece of information or one more person on my team, then it will be okay. And guess what? We just have to start. 
We have to start. Mm-hmm. And so the double dog dare is to start because that's the hardest part. Mm. So true, so true. And you end the book with an epilogue called Dreaming Again and Again. And you quote a, a poem at the end uh, by Richard Maltby, Jr., called The Story Goes On. And I'd, I'd like to actually just read it. It's a, it's a couple of paragraphs, but I think it really uh, hones in on what's really important, which is the legacy that gets created uh, by, by the dream. And this is um, from the musical Baby. So this is the tale my mother told me, that tale that was much too dull to hold me. And this is the surge and the rush she said would show. Our story goes on. Oh, I was young. I forgot the things that things outlived me. My goal was the kick that life would give me. And now, like a joke, something moves to let me know. Our story goes on. And all these things I feel and more, my mother's mother felt and hers before. A chain of life begun upon the shore of some dark sea has reached to me. And now I can see the chain extending. My child is next in a line that has no ending. And here I am, full of life, that her child will feel when I'm long gone. And thus it is that our story goes on. So, Whitney. I love that poem. Yeah, I do too. It makes me tear up, and I've read it hundreds of times. (laughs) I love that poem. So if there was one thing that you would leave as a word of encouragement, uh, certainly to the women of the Executive Girlfriends Group uh, that uh, sponsored this show, but to those who are going to hear it uh, really around the globe who happen to to listen on Blog Talk Radio or, or our iTunes channel, how do we start? Three phrases. We dare to disrupt ourselves, our perspective, our our how we perceive ourselves. We dream our very own dream, and then we do. It really is that simple. Mm. Well, Whitney, it has been such a pleasure talking to you, and thank you for giving us so generously of your time. Uh, I know you you have a lot going on in your life. You have mentioned several times your blog. Can you share with those who are not a part of the Executive Girlfriends Group how they can learn more about you and also if they are interested in finding out more about Rose Park Advisors? Very simple. You can go to WhitneyJohnson.com and you'll be able to find everything you need there, the blog, Rose Park Advisors, et cetera. Great, great. Well, I was just uh, browsing through your, your blog uh, titles from the, the last few days and, and um, very inspiring stuff. And uh, so for those of you uh, in the Executive Girlfriends Group, I know Patty has added uh, Whitney to the Executive Girlfriends Group private uh, website that we have. And you can directly email her from there. And also, I believe that her book, Dare, Dream, Do, Remarkable Things Happen When You Dare to Dream, is available on the Executive Girlfriends Group uh, book club site. It's it's also available on Amazon and a number of other channels. So, Whitney, thank you again. And I just hope you have a wonderful weekend. And uh, I'm hoping that we will talk again. I, I actually need to get to Boston uh for another meeting with another investor up there. So uh, it would be great to meet face-to-face. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. This has really been a lot of fun. All right, terrific. Well, have a great weekend. And thanks, everybody. And we will see you again next week.
Take care.